The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Nectar Corridor, a podcast where we explore the incredible world of mezcal, the most emblematic and diverse spirit of Mexico. I'm your host, Nikki Nakazawa. In this 10th and final episode of season one, we're going to consider a basic question that has a rather complex and nuanced answer. What makes a good mezcal? First, we speak with Cynthia Villalobos from Aventureros de Mezcal about her collaborations with mezcal producers and how she came to be a recognized voice in the mezcal world. Later, we're going to speak with Jesus Espina Ortiz from Archivo Maguey, who discusses what it means to drink mezcal and how he created a unique tasting experience, integrating a lot of his background as an industrial designer. This podcast was originally recorded in Spanish. Our conversation with Cynthia is interpreted by Carmen Reyes. My name is Cynthia Villalobos, and I'm a chemical engineer by trade. For the last 10 to 13 years, I've worked in the world of mezcal. And although I'm based in Oaxaca, I work with producers all over Mexico. I have always known about mezcal because I'm Oaxacan. And it's always been present in parties and in sad moments, too. But in 2006, I was lucky enough to meet Graciela Angeles, who is now the manager of the Real Minero company. We became good friends and she wanted to professionalize the company. She wanted to turn this family business into something more formal. I had done cost analysis for some companies, so I started doing it for her mezcal business. Back in 2006, when Cynthia and Graciela began working together, mezcal was a largely overlooked industry with a greatly undervalued product. No one wanted it. I remember that people thought it tasted too strong and that it felt like a cheap drink. They wanted nothing to do with it. Through doing cost analysis for producers, we noticed that a lot of them were losing money. So I decided to help mezcaleros with their cost analysis and ended up working in Michoacán, Mexico City, Guanajuato, Puebla, Guerrero, and obviously Oaxaca. And it turned out that every single producer was losing money. They would lose 50 pesos here and 80 pesos there and make no profit whatsoever. So I realized that all the costs for the production of mezcal were not properly taken into account and that producers were just following the market. Cynthia explained to me that the drastically low price per liter of mezcal was caused by two main factors. First off, many people would find and extract wild magueyes for production, which meant that they weren't looking at how long each plant had taken to grow or how many to leave planted in order to reforest the area. And the second reason is that only the market was being served, which meant that a lot of costs were not taken into account. For example, those of us who work with producers know that normally it's a family business, and everyone from the youngest son to the wife plays a part in it. We see it a lot in Miahuatlán. They don't use day laborers to cover the mezcal oven. 
Instead, they used the tequio. We're talking 15 people who helped to cover the oven. And if they weren't there, someone would have to pay for that work. The word tequio refers to an explicit practice of mutual aid or collective work, where members of a community contribute with their labor, materials, or know-how to projects that benefit the common good. In Oaxaca, it is very common, and it basically means mutual help. In other words, if I have an upcoming event, I'll ask my community for help. So let's assume I'm planning a party. The women from other families will help me kill the chickens, make the mole, and essentially do everything food-wise. And then the men perform activities such as the cleaning of the property and uncovering the oven in the palenques. And then when it's someone else's turn to ask for help, you have to go and help them. Cynthia spent time in other parts of the country where producers work alone, often because labor is more expensive. In addition, they might deal with the issue of organized crime, which also affects them when it comes to finding labor, because they must compete with the high prices offered by illicit activities to those same workers. I asked Cynthia to talk a bit about the challenges shared by mezcal producers throughout Mexico. First off, there is a romanticization of mezcal. Those of us who tried it and have been fascinated with it see this mystical and beautiful part of mezcal, but we don't see all the work involved for the mezcal producers. Another interesting problem is that we don't really take into consideration the plant, which is a foundation of production. So if we do not consider that certain species can take five to seven years to grow, and then others take 15 to 18 years. So that's a big problem. We don't appreciate all the effort that nature has gone through to keep these plants growing and to take the time to replenish each species. Another challenge lies in the marketing. Most producers are not prepared to market their mezcal properly. Many are not even fully aware of the basic permits. They don't understand the process, and I don't blame them. They're mezcaleros, not marketers. So that leads to an unfair playing field. Imagine that I'm a person that is aware of all these permits and the process. I can go ahead and buy and bargain, and I generate a lot of income, and you can see this reflected in the costs. For example, let's say we have 200 pesos, which is around $10, and producers are earning 35% on the initial gross product. That's 70 pesos. And then a middleman arrives and makes a 20% profit on the bottled product. But the final marketer is going to have a profit of between 50 and 60% of the value of the finished product. So we're no longer talking about 70 pesos. We're talking about profits of 150 to 200 pesos per bottle, which all goes to the marketer because they made the final product transaction. And the one who made the magic of mezcal come true only keeps 70 pesos. And that's in a good case scenario. This path led Cynthia to found, along with other members, the Aventuros de Mezcal Association, approximately eight years ago. The project had been a long time in the making. Cynthia had always wanted to work on a social and cultural project, and for her, mezcal just clicked. La idea era, vamos a darle visibilidad a los productores. We wanted to give visibility to the producers. We wanted to buy the product, a product that people cannot find in the supermarket or in a convenience store, and take it to the customer's front door. It was like an online subscription, where you could receive a bottle of mezcal from the producer directly to your home. About 10 years ago, we earned the trust of the producers because we made it a point, from a market perspective, to overpay them. In reality, this meant that they were paid fairly. So we bought mezcal from them at certain price, and we told them that they couldn't sell the mezcal below that price because they were going to lose. 
So we started to work with the producers and a lot of them started acquiring new clients who paid them a fair price and this is how we started the marketing process. Then we noticed all the obstacles that we had to overcome in order to make this product legal. We do the cost analysis, the marketing, but now we also help them with the legal process and we help producers so they can have their own brand. It's a difficult and time-consuming job because a producer can make a delicious mezcal but doesn't know anything about marketing. We make producers understand that they really have to fight out there with these huge transnational companies that put a lot of money into the development of a label, marketing, and other things. We've managed to export products from several producers to other countries. We give advice to companies and producers. We provide cost analysis and we try to accommodate them with marketers who have the same vision as us. One of the most important efforts that Cynthia has focused on is reforestation and conservation. There have been many experiments throughout the years. The idea has always been to make people aware of the conservation of species, especially for those that exist in the area. In other words, if there is no espadín there, then espadín is not planted. Then many people take seeds from here in Oaxaca and plant them in Puebla or in Michoacán or in San Luis Potosí. It could be that the plant grows, but there is a reason why certain species don't exist in certain areas. That is why we have ecological boundaries. What grows in the south doesn't grow in the north. And doing these practices have a negative impact on the environment. We started to focus on the conservation of wild agaves, but a lot of producers are very resistant because it is a lot of work. The planting, the care, the cultural aspect. Paying people to reforest manually would be okay. But if you don't pay producers fairly for their mezcal, how can they pay someone else to take on reforestation efforts? It is a really complicated topic that without income, it gets even more complicated. Then there's the issue of fair payment, which, as Cynthia defines it, is one that generates at least 35% profit for mezcal producers once all other expenses are covered. From the labor of the lady who makes the tortillas, the beers and cigarettes that are bought for the workers, the donkey feed, and even considering the depreciation of the palenque, this still surprises me after so many years that very few people consider all of these things. Very few people really pay for the product that their maestro mezcalero is giving them. And in turn, the mezcalero doesn't know if he's making a profit. So if we don't have a cost structure, it is very difficult to know that we're on the right path. The Mezcal Regulatory Council, or the CRM, tried to create a table where the price per liter of a mezcal was established to an average price per degree of alcohol. So, depending on the maguey, for example, in the case of espadín, the price per liter per degree was four pesos. So, if an espadín was 40 proof, you had to multiply four pesos by 40 proof, which resulted in a price of 160 pesos per liter. I asked Cynthia if, according to her vision, this system might help to define pricing, but she doesn't think that it's the best way forward, given the diversity of situations that producers experience. In the end, this table created greater inequality for those producers who paid more for agave or, for example, generated wide differences between those who used or did not use agrochemicals. Cynthia tells me that they began to work with a civil engineer in the treatment of vinasas, and we're trying to raise awareness about how to do it more efficiently and with less impact for the producer. The term binasas refers to the chemical waste from the distillation of mezcal. I asked Cynthia what advice she has to reduce their impact. One of the bad practices is that they're hot. 
One of the bad practices is that chemicals are thrown out hot. Usually when you throw something hot into a waterbed, you end up killing part of the flora and fauna that lives there. The second thing is that it contains very acidic and very aggressive compounds that affect the microbiota and makes it sterile. We chemists call it chemical oxygen demand. That is, if you put it in a body of water, it will absorb all the oxygen that is there. So there are basically toxic compounds. There are many studies to treat these vinasas, but they are all focused on industrialization and on a very large quantities. So what we recommend is to neutralize them in a tank with ash or lime, depending on the pH of each vinasa. And once it's neutralized and cold, you can use it as a fertilizer to water crops. Another practice we try to spread is reusing water. There are some projects that capture rainwater and reuse it. And we also teach producers that the amount of firewood that is used is truly brutal. There's a lot of illegal extraction and trade of firewood. So we talk about the idea of responsibly pruning, which means that every year they dedicate part of their time to pruning the land or the trees that are within the community. This way they are able to collect firewood in much safer and more sustainable manner. Unfortunately, there are many practices that they don't carry out consistently because in the end, what they're looking for is to sell their mezcal. Many times they're not thinking about the environment. Cynthia also says that having an in-depth understanding of the chemical processes during the production of mezcal can be very useful for producers. The main headaches of these producers are methanol, higher alcohols, furfural. So when they don't understand where these type of compounds come from, they keep replicating practices that aren't necessarily bad, but that don't meet the physical chemical parameters that you need to legally sell. Methanol, for example, can generate in greater quantities by using poorly cut plants or overcooking them again. And this methanol can't be removed later during the process. There was a widespread myth that the methanol was in the puntas, the first distillation of mezcal, but it's actually in the colas, the final distillation. Examples like this highlight the importance of spreading chemical knowledge to the producers so that they can have better profits and practices. Although we love traditional mezcal, if it doesn't meet a standard, then it can't always be marketed properly. I asked Cynthia to explain what the CRM deemed to be the chemical parameters of a good mezcal. Basically, it has to meet an alcohol content of 35 to 55%. The idea that we call a 35% drink a mezcal seems sacrilegious to me, but the norm allows 35 to 55%. Each bottle can hold up to 10 grams per liter of dry extract, which is basically sediment. You can have higher alcohols from 100 to 500 milligrams per 100 milliliters. The minimum limit for methanol is 30 milligrams, while the maximum is 300. But the issue is that the standards with which the official Mexican standard for mezcal was made are copied from other standards. So we can't compare fruit destillates, rums, whiskeys, and others when the raw material is completely different. We're talking about grains, cereals, and sugarcane. And the maguey behaves in a totally different way. The maguey has compounds that favor the production of methanol due to the chemistry from the plant. When there's a lower alcoholic degree, there are also less problems with passing physical chemical parameters because you can make an adjustment with water. So this makes it much easier to pass these parameters. And a traditional mezcal is going to be approximately 48% to 52%. It's a little harder to pass these parameters if you have a slightly higher grade mezcal typically made by a regional or traditional producer. I then asked Cynthia one of the most complex and important questions in the world of mezcal. 
what constitutes a good mezcal for her and what parameters must be taken into account. When talking about mezcal, it's difficult to think of something standardized. It will depend on the flavor of the plant, the region, and the season. We can't think of mezcal from Yahuatlán as being the same as those from Sola de Vega or Yautepec. In other words, the variety of mezcal flavors and aromas, even when made from the same species, is really impressive. So the product itself cannot be standardized. Second, we need to know what's going on with production methods and practices. An artisanal distilled beverage is not the same as an ancestral one. One that is crushed by hand isn't the same as one fermented in a plastic drum. Another thing that we have to take into account is waste management. Most of the producers don't handle their wastes responsibly. That's just a reality. It could be because they're uninformed or they don't have the resources or simply because they don't think it's toxic or harmful to the environment. So for me, that would be another characteristic to consider if it is a good mezcal or not. And the management and recovery practice of the ecosystem, in other words, of the plants that someone extracts, how many do they replant and in what way do they do so? Because it is not just sowing for the sake of it, but it is really that each individual plant has a function within the ecosystem. That is something we do not understand. And finally, the cost and the payment. Do I take into account the lady who is there, staying up late with her husband, the distilling, the children who are there, the wear of the clay pots, the wear of the infrastructure? Those points for me make a good mezcal. And someone once told me, well, with your whole speech, you're making mezcal prohibitive. But honestly, I think it should be prohibitive because it's not a basic consumer good. It's alcohol. That's how I see it. So do you want to have a good mezcal? Well, that's our vision. There are some tips that Cynthia has for consumers to know what to look for when purchasing a good mezcal. We offer tasting at Aventureros del Mezcal in Mexico City, and I always tell people that we have to know where the mezcal that we're drinking comes from. You have to know from the outset if it has a name of a producer or if it's just a brand. The label should provide as much information as possible, including how it was produced, how many liters were distilled, what kind of maguey was used, How many years did it take for the species to grow? Was it wild or was it cultivated? And also ask the brand ambassadors. They have an obligation to have all this information at hand. If I question an ambassador about their mezcal, then that information will reach the owner, the brand, or the producer. So I think we should ask those kinds of questions ourselves. Cynthia's response reminded me a lot about my conversation with Lalo Angeles in episode three. He said... Mezcal doesn't look for you. You have to look for it. It's made by hardworking human hands, and people should make the effort to seek it out. It's our responsibility as drinkers of mezcal to do our own research. Chucho Ortiz is the creator of one of the most complete mezcal tasting experiences in Mexico. He's worked for years to refine and improve the experience, collecting data from the tastings along the way. Our conversation with Chucho is interpreted by José María Nondé Rangel. My name is Jesús Espina, but I got by Chucho Ortiz. 
I am a mezcal selector and distiller, and I have a project called Archivo Maguey here in Oaxaca. My family has been involved in the world of mezcal for many generations. My grandfather grew up in the town of San Miguel Achutla, which is part of the Tlaxiaco district in the Mixteca region. It is a town with a lot of pre-Hispanic historical traditions, but it is also a fairly poor area. He married a woman, my grandmother, in a nearby town. After that, he began a project called Gusano de Oro, which means gold worm, and he will buy mezcal from local producers from the Mixteca region and start marketing them. This is really similar to what I do now, actually. And later on, he built a palenque, but he wasn't a maestro mezcalero. He wanted to have more control over his production, so he would have all the work happen on his palenque, and then he will go out and sell the mezcal. Chucho tells me that what really stood out about his grandfather's mezcal selections was that they were all from the Mixteca region. Matatlán, which is here in the state of Oaxaca, is the production center of mezcal worldwide. And the first mezcal boom in the region was during the 1950s and 60s. You could find mezcal from Matatlán all in the corners of Oaxaca. And the smell of Cook Maguey, the flavor that everyone recognized, was totally tied to Matatlán. My grandfather didn't like that because he has always been very proud of the Mixteca people, of our land, of who we are. And I inherited that pride from him. He will say, I don't sell mezcal from Atatlan, I sell mezcal Mixteco. And so he bought from many Mixtec mezcaleros before the denomination of origin and before the production of mezcal in this region was prohibited. He had an incredible collection of bowls that no longer exist. And part of my own project comes from there. I inherited my dad's taste from mezcales as well, because he grew up surrounded by mezcales and mezcaleros. He learned so much from my grandfather and then passed all the knowledge to me and my brothers. And so I tell people that we do not come from three generations of mezcal producers. We actually come from generations of mezcal merchants. Chuchu studied design and fine arts in Mexico City. He integrated a bit of Oaxaca into every single project, from designing to packaging and label making. Estudiando diseño en bellas artes, pues hacía todos los proyectos que hacíamos, proyectos escolares, ¿no? De diseño de un envase, diseño de una etiqueta, diseño de. I design packaging for products like moles, sauces, chiles, honey, and obviously mezcal. One of them was called Espina Roja. And that eventually became my first brand of mezcal, which my dad managed to this day. We bought mezcal from producers with whom my father has been working for a long time, along with some new ones that we met in the Sierra. We bottled it and we sold it as a Oaxacan mezcal experience. We wanted to be genuine and share our history, our heritage, our roots. We will say, this is mezcal and this is how you should drink it. This is how we know it, and this is its history, and people really like it. It felt like at the moment we had discovered this beautiful familial cultural world, and so we began to use that in our favor. Beyond investing in advertising and packaging, we tried to have a very good product and a quality selection. Chucho has a particular interest in what actually defines a good quality mezcal. 
al no existir como una relación, digamos, de información como existe en el tema de los vinos, ¿no? Que With mezcal, there is no information relationship as it exists in the subject of wines. Right now you can have a wine, for example, a Cabernet, and you base its quality on what experts have said about it for a hundred years. And they have the knowledge of what good wine is expected to taste like. But in Oaxaca, we're seeing an organoleptic tragedy because it is increasingly difficult to know if what is being sold is accurate to what the label says it is. In the terms of flavor, it could be that they're selling you a tepestate, but it's no longer tastes like a genuine tepestate. And I am talking about real historic flavors. Those of us who have been in the world of mezcal for so many years know what it tastes like. To put it in another way, it is like when they give you a banana and suddenly it doesn't taste like a banana. Even if it looks like a banana and you can cut it open and eat it like a banana, we already have that organoleptic memory configured through our lives. We know what a banana should taste and we starting to see this more and more with genetic modification. My mom, who's a cook, will send me to the market to buy a tomato and then she'll taste it and say, no, this is not good because it doesn't taste like a tomato. That is a quick explanation of what we saw happening. We didn't realize that there was a lot of quote-unquote imitation mezcal. I met Chucho in 2013 when he had just launched his Espina Roja brand. At that time, he was around 22 years old and still a student in Mexico City. Entonces, era muy como una fuente de marcas, ¿no? Todavía marcas grandes, grandes, que ahorita son Back muy then, famosas. there were several festivals, like the Agave Fest, and a lot of us in the mezcal scene will get together in doing an historical analysis of this boom. I think it started in 2008, more or less. And it has a lot to do with the La Logia of the Mezcolatras, with the project of Don Cornelio Pérez and Maestro Lalo Ángeles, there, they started bringing mezcal tasting experiences, and we were so surprised by the diversity of the experiences of each individual mezcalero. There were some from the Mixteca region, some from the Sierra, from Oaxaca, Michoacán, and Guerrero. I wasn't necessarily part of this wave of people who were surprised by this diversity. I already had mezcal knowledge from working with my family and from living in Oaxaca. And I think that the person who taught my generation to be surprised by the diversity was Felix Monterrosa. He is an incredible visionary and his Mezcaleria Quish is one of the oldest that has this approach of showing the world the diversity of Mezcal. When I was around 18 years old, we used to go to Quish to drink Mezcal for 10 pesos and tepestates cost 30 pesos. It was cheaper than beer. They were the same mezcales that now cost 150 to 200 pesos. My first time there, I already knew about pichomel, papalo metal, and things like that. In other words, I knew mezcal and I wasn't looking for anything new. So at Quish, I saw a list of mezcales made from all different species of maguey. They were Mexicano, Tobasiche, Tobala, and all for 10 pesos. And I am a very curious person, so I try one, and then I try another one, and then another one. And it was like a child tasting a lemon or a strawberry for the first time. It was such an eye-opening experience, and I always tell Felix 
that he taught my generation to embrace diversity. I studied abroad in Oaxaca in 2005, and Quiche was also where I started learning about mezcal when I came back to visit in subsequent years. I would go to the tastings with Maestro Cornelio, and I remember being so captivated by the way he will analyze the processes. Coming from an educational processes and a little from my family gastronomy and another from my studying design, I unintentionally merged my love from Oaxaca and my love for design. Then I began to really get into the topic of researching mezcal and understanding how distillation, fermentation, and the biological processes of the plant itself worked. And it led me to understand the world that we as Mexicans have in our hands. We have the possibility of obtaining a high-quality product in a very easy way. Armed with his family traditions, his new training, and his experience with mezcal, Chucho began to design a methodology to taste and evaluate mezcal. As a school project, I started developing a methodology to analyze mezcal at a sensory level, but I didn't really know anything going into it. Taking into account that in the end, drinking mezcal is not for human survival. It is not like if you don't drink mezcal, you're going to die. So most of the things that are designed in the world are made for pure enjoyment. For example, sitting in a comfortable or ergonomic chair, it is a matter of pleasure, or being in a nice house or driving a car, all those kind of things are very human acts that are truly pleasurable. The human is one of the few animals that seeks pleasures for ourselves, so I thought that if drinking mezcal doesn't depend on life or death, why don't we make it more of an effort to enjoy it, as we make an effort to better design a chair or better design the lighting of a place? So, through the same methodologies like this, usability, sensoriality, etc., I started to generate these methodologies that I really finished designing about four years ago. And I wasn't even doing it for the great, but in the end, I got to know my incredible teachers. As we've already heard in previous episodes, there are often teachers and mentors involved in inspiring the path of new generations. Chucho tells me who they were for him. The person who moved me the most towards the path that I'm currently on is Daniel Abdelmasi. The two of us got together and started doing a lot of sessions to generate these processes. Our goal was for people to enjoy the product more. If we achieve that, people will understand the product more. And as a consequence, they will respect it more. I feel like we live in a time where the consumer thinks more about what they consume. Being inquisitive and having access to information makes it easier to know where everything you are consuming comes from. Large brands of mezcal face great challenges to improving their quality because now more than ever, there are consumers asking questions. And projects like Mezcaloteca, for example, were among the first that began to put such explicit information on their labels. One big rule that I have regarding my mezcales is that I cannot make mezcal if the maguez is not planted in this region. This is one way to help insurance that we're maintaining a healthy ecosystem. 
there were two key moments that marked Chucho's path to designing these tasting experiences. The first moment that marked me at a level of personal introspection was once when I was on my way to Mexico City. It was September, and this is when the agave potatorum begins to bloom. And the potatorum has a beautiful zigzag type quixote. All magueys are beautiful when they flower, but the potatorum has this very special shape. And I remember looking at it back then and thinking about how, once again, drinking mezcal is an act of pleasure. Seeing a work of art is an act of pleasure, and seeing a flower like that potatorum was an act of pleasure as well. So at the moment I realized there is no problem if the mezcal runs out, as long as we continue to see those flowers. In the end, there is no problem if we run out of the mezcal, because there will always be another one. There will always be another maguey, and there won't be a problem if we stop drinking mezcal. And that's the kind of thing I felt sometimes brands don't do, and it's the kind of things that moves me to continue working. Ask yourself, what do you hold on to having a tepestate in your collection when there is no tepestate, there is no tobala, there is no Sierra Negra? There are no such agaves. And that has also led to my selection becoming smaller. Not because they are exclusive, but because you don't have to force the agave to grow or to exist. Just enjoy every time you have the opportunity to drink a mezcal. The second moment of realization for Chucho was during a trip with his wife and daughters. One of my daughters, Valentina, asked me why I like mezcal so much, and I told her the same thing that I told you, about how my family passed this tradition down from generation to generation. And then she asked me, what does mezcal taste like? So I asked her, well, what does an apple taste like? And I kept thinking about that and motivates me to know that if I continue to do this work, then I will be able to show my daughters what really mezcal tastes like. Like I said before, it is increasingly difficult to find the authenticity of flavors. I am seeing more and more brands in Oaxaca that claim to produce mezcal, but what they are producing is agave alcohol. Because mezcal, at the end of the day, is a heritage drink. It preserves the flavors of the land, of the tradition, of the techniques. And that drink is no longer viable if, for example, you take potatorum from Puebla and make a mezcal with it here in Oaxaca. Yes, you're producing alcohol and you're doing it with the plant you mentioned, but it no longer tastes like what a tobala from Sola de Vega should taste like. Those are the things that move me to do what I do. As we heard, Chucho designed a unique mezcal tasting experience by integrating his cultural and family knowledge, the teachings of his mentors, and his design studies. I went through this whole experience with him. Our conversation is recorded in Spanish, and if you're interested in hearing it, check out El Corredor del Nectar wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much to Cynthia and Chucho for speaking to us, and to her voice actors, Carmen and Jose Maria, who's also the founder of Panorama Mezcal and beverage director at Claro Restaurant in Brooklyn. Saludos desde las tierras del mezcal, y hasta la próxima.
The Nectar Corridor is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Nectar Corridor team, producer Jackie Nowak, associate producer Rosina Castillo, editors Andres Jimenez and Max Kotolchuk, and researcher Olivia Mayeda. English translations are by Jackie Nowak, with editorial help from Carlin Crosby and Emily Vizzo. Cover art by Alex Bowman. Thanks to Las Nortanitas de Oro for the use of our theme song, Jinetes en el Cielo. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kotelchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant and Melissa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more video podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone Media at whetstonemedia.com. The Nectar Corridor is originally produced and recorded in Spanish. If you'd like to listen to the original interview, you can search for El Corredor del Nectar wherever you get your podcasts.